Well, welcome to another episode of the award-winning radio show and podcast, Dr. Doctor, featuring your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWT and Global Catholic Radio Network. And joining us again, listeners will recognize pediatrician extraordinary Dr. Gwyneth Spader. She's going to talk about adolescent medicine. I can't think of a more important topic today. Yeah, a lot of heavy stuff in this this episode, so maybe a, a little warning for any younger kids who might be listening. But for parents, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to go straight to the interview so we have time for all of the important questions. We'll be back in just a moment here on Dr. Doctor. All right, and we are back today on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Gwyneth Spader of uh, Happy Memory. It's not your first time, uh, not your first rodeo here. Uh, listeners will remember that Dr. Spader went to University of Dallas for undergraduate and, and got a degree in political philosophy before going to John Hopkins for uh, School of Medicine and is now a pediatrician in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where she lives with her husband and three children. So, Gwena, thank you for coming back on to talk about a, a very important topic. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I, so, as we talked about in the intro with another episode, we talked about infants and newborns and sort of the traditional schedule of care and what happens and why it happens. We're going to continue that discussion talking about adolescence. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to, hard to pick what's most important or most controversial about adolescents. They're not easy little critters sometimes. No, they are not. <laughs> I, I kind of think this might be the most complicated uh, topic to talk about in relation to pediatrics. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's uh, there's so many things. And I would say, especially with the guidance that we get from professional organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, how that is juxtaposed with what common sense and maybe our faith would tell us uh, is the best way to care for these these youngsters. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's there are days in my office when I just because of the way my schedule works out that I'm bouncing between you know a two month old and a sixteen year old <laughs> and a four year old and an eighteen year old and it it's almost you get a little bit of whiplash in, in how um, how much variety there is in in day-to-day pediatric life but I think adolescents are a remarkable uh, population to take care of for the same reason that they're a remarkable population to parent Mm. Um, and that is that there's so much growth and there's so much development and it's exciting and it's fun to watch but there's challenges that go along with that as they're trying to figure out who they are and who they want to be and that comes out very clearly in the pediatrician's office. You know I've heard it said about anesthesia that it's as a practice of anesthesia it's 90% boredom and 10% terror (laughs) and and I would say maybe there's an analogy there for parenting adolescents. You you cruise along pretty smoothly for a while and then all of a sudden you know you're not. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, I think that's accurate. And I remember from my peds professor in medical school, he used to always say, children are not just little adults, you know, they're not yeah. just adults with lower doses of medicines. But it seems to me that couldn't be more true with adolescents. They're not just young adults, are they? They're really not. I mean, in, interestingly, I'm very familiar with that phrase, they're not just little adults. We we tell it to our students all the time. Um, but it's it's in the physical aspect of the fields of pediatrics, that's probably more true when you are dealing with the very young ages and some of their physiology is very different than adult physiology. By the time you're dealing with adolescents, the physical differences between them and adults start to shrink. And uh, in terms of biology and pharmacology, a lot of those differences go away. But in terms of psychology and (laughs) um, mental health and just overall, uh, maturity and, and intellectual development, they are very much not adults yet. Well, Gwyneth, maybe maybe we can launch right into the idea of the whole well-child checks. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of uh, parents are really on board when they've got a newborn and they're scared to death and they don't know what to do. And then they go for a couple, five, ten years. And then, yeah. yeah, it's, it's kind of routine, especially if you have a couple of children. And then you get to the adolescent years, why is it important that they have well-child checks? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think you're right. A lot of parents assume by the time their kids kind of hit middle school and get their first round of booster shots that they're good to go unless something comes up. Uh, the reason we encourage families and, and patients to continue to come and see us yearly is very similar for the reasons we talked about at the last podcast. You know, we are trying from an objective perspective to keep an eye on their growth, both their physical growth and um of emotional and intellectual growth um, and make sure that that's proceeding appropriately. Um, and then again, we, we are kind of trained to catch things, um, either physical or emotional or mental, that might not be obvious to the parents that are a, a developing problem, but the sooner we intervene, the better. Um, you know, uh, a lot of parents have very fuzzy memories of their own experience going through puberty, and they might not actually know what's normal progression and what's not. Mm. Um, scoliosis is something, or curvature of the spine, uh, is most common to develop in early adolescence when you're going through your growth spurt. So critical to have um, regular screenings of that. Um, and then I also like to try and explain to families that adolescents um, need to start learning to take ownership of their own health. Mm. That while I very much want their parents to be involved with the discussions that we're having, that you know by the time they graduate from my care, they need to be able to, to advocate for their own health. And part of learning how to do that can occur in these adolescent visits. Well, I guess one question that, that comes up sometimes is the idea of the well-child check versus maybe the sports physical which I feel like some, sometimes they, they occur on the same day. Um, what are some of the similarities and differences there? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, in my practice, we, we basically treat them interchangeably. Yeah. Um, so if you have had a, a what we call a well-child check or an annual physical, we will fill out a sports clearance form as long as that visit has occurred within a calendar year. Um, the reason there's been so much emphasis on sports physicals in the past, I don't know how many years, um, is that we are trying to reduce the risk of significant injury or harm to any of our patients who are playing uh, in various sports teams. So we're primarily trying to catch cardiac risk, but we're also looking yeah. for the possibility of neurologic injury, musculoskeletal injury. Um, and some patients, whether it be their own uh, health history or their family's health history, are at higher risk of having one of these um, bad outcomes from, from sports play. So the sports physicals, at least in the state of North Carolina, where I practice, um, start with a screening questionnaire that asks very specific questions about the patient's uh, own health history and the immediate family's health history. And then after that, it's just a regular physical exam that we sign off on. You know, right right after uh, COVID, when that all went, went through, uh, something really controversial, at least in my state, they made sports physicals not required. Oh. Um, and so what we saw subsequently was a lot of folks who really skipped a year or two of any kind of well care whatsoever. Did you guys see that where, where you're at? We did not. Um, so local to where I practice, um, there was only a very short period of time when we stopped um, what we considered, quote, non-essential physicals. So we never stopped seeing kids who were due for vaccines. Um, and there was only a few month period where we were trying to to delay the other annual physicals and the other age groups. So there was never an instance in which somebody would not have been able to get a sports physical. Um, but as a general topic or, or you know, thought experiment, I think you're exactly right to point out that when we do things like that, we do bring out the question, well, if we don't need it now, why do we need it in the future? And I think, you know, as we're coming out of the COVID years, um, it's important to me to try and explain to people that, you know, though, especially that initial, I don't know, 12 to 15 months when, when things were changing so rapidly that we have to remember that we were making decisions in real time with ever-changing information mm. and that we were saying at certain points, yeah, we know this is not ideal, but we are trying to protect a general population here and so we're going to make some exceptions. And I think it would be a mistake to not point out to people that we're no longer in that situation and therefore we should really try mm 
to move back to evidence-based best practices, which would be routine care for all our patients. You know, going to, in our last episode, we talked a lot about uh, infant and childhood vaccines. And so now as we move into the adolescence, you know, as you think about, you know, the 10, 12, 13-year-old pre-adolescent adolescent, um, what, what are the relevant vaccines issues uh, in that adolescent age group? There's a lot less, which most <laughs> adolescents are <laughs> delighted to hear. There's a lot fewer shots when you're uh, once you reach the tween years. So the standard vaccines um, that we offer at about 10 or 11 years of age are the what's called Tdap, or it's a booster for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, um, or pertussis is whooping cough. Um, we also offer um, a meningitis vaccine that covers four strains, A, C, W, and Y. That's a two-dose series that's given um, at the around 11-year visit, and then you get your second dose around 16 years of age. Um, and then there's a second meningitis vaccine that's specific for meningitis B, which is the more um, well-known and more deadly of the meningitis um, infections. That is given also as a two-dose series at age 16 and 17, typically, as kids are, are going off to college, which is when they're at highest risk for that particular infection. So, Gwyneth, um, why, the why, other, the why the emphasis on meningitis in this age group? What's unique about adolescents that puts them at risk for potentially like um, They start, yeah, no, it's a good question. They start spending time in um, away from their home and in close quarters with others. So uh -huh. summer camps, um, uh, boarding schools, colleges, mm. uh, areas where meningitis can spread very rapidly sure. um, is why we target those age groups. Mm. Um, and then the, the other vaccine series that we um, offer to the adolescent population is the human papillomavirus, otherwise known as Gardasil, um, that protects against um, nine different strains of HPV um, and uh, aims to protect um, patients against uh, various forms of cervical um, and penile cancers. Sure. Yeah. Well, and lest, lest we be accused of shying away from controversy, yeah. we would never want that here on Dr. <laughs> we would or never want to do that. Get into That's the main right. dish. Yeah, here let's, we go. let's unwrap the HPV because I know a lot of stuff. Andrew and I both get bombarded, as I know you do, from well-meaning yeah. and very concerned parents. Yeah. What should my decision be on the HPV vaccine? I struggle with that uh, with that answer sometimes. So let, let's, uh, let's help listeners you know, gain some understanding there, Gwyneth. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, this is something I obviously um, get a lot of questions about also. Yeah, um, and um, I do tell people that it is a vaccine that I recommend um, to all of my patients. Um, and I recommend it at the ages uh, that it's, you know, initially offered between the nine and 11 year visit. Um, I think that it gets people very nervous because um, human papillomavirus is a, an infection that is transmitted through sexual activity. And most parents, myself included, uh, do not want to think about nine to 11 year old children being at risk for a sexually transmitted disease. Right. And um, there's a couple of things that I like to point out to patients or parents really when we talk about this. Um, first off, the reason we offer it as young as we do is twofold. One, as no one listening to this podcast will be surprised to hear, we live in a fallen world um, and you know some terrible things happen to very young children. Um, two, uh, some very young tween and teen, young teen uh, adolescents make the choice to become sexually active. And while I wish that wasn't the case, it, the, the data is very strong on that. Um, and so the idea is to get this protection um, on board before that activity mm -hmm. begins. But the other, and I think actually more convincing um, piece of information that persuades me to offer it to this young age group is that just as adolescents are going through um, an incredible growth, uh, a physical growth and development, the immune system in this age group is also going through remarkable um, changes. And there is a window of opportunity in which we can actually induce a stronger 
longer, more effective response in the younger age group than we can um, once that immune system has kind of finished its growth spurt, mm. such that if you complete the HPV series before the age of 15, you actually only need two doses. Um, if you receive the series after the age of 15, you require three different doses to uh, get to the same efficacy and duration. Yeah, I mean, as a gynecologist, I see young women only, obviously, and it is a struggle. I mean, we're, especially a lot of my patients would classify themselves, I think, as authentically Catholic, and they're thinking, I'm raising my daughter, that she is going to have sexual relations with one man, and it will be her husband. And um, assuming he's been raised in a similar family, um, the HPV vaccine is obsolete. And I, and I want to say... That's exactly correct. Um, but then there's the biology side of me that's saying, well, your daughter may fall in love with someone who had a colorful past, who's now a wonderful person, but but maybe they had Well, a this is exactly, past, yeah. yeah, no, this is exactly how I approach it. I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think we are all doing the best we can to um, teach our children um, a sexual ethics and um, morality that would lead them to uh, wait until marriage to uh, become sexually active. But again, in this fallen world that we're all living in, you know, the numbers are what the numbers are. And when it came to making the decision for my own children, I had to reckon with the fact that um, I, I have no idea, first of all, if he's called to marriage, but second of all, you know, who his future spouse may be. And what if my son is the one to bring that person into the church? Mm. What if they are the one to, you know, cause a conversion? And do I want him to be at risk for a disease um, that may have been contracted 10 years before they ever met? Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do tell parents, I said, look, you can go to confession. You can have all sorts of... Um, not all sorts. You can have all your sins forgiven, including you know any sexual sins that you may have committed. But that absolution, while it cleans your soul, it cannot do anything about the HPV yeah. virus living within you. That's a good point. Um, so those are the biological realities yeah. of of being human, of of having a human body um, post fall. So well, that's how know, I try and I explain it. I think also we're seeing a time where, uh, strangely enough, for gynecology. The pap smear is sort of becoming obsolete. Yeah. Because cervical abnormalities are HPV abnormalities. If you take HPV out of the picture, for the most part, you know, the pap smear sort of culture, you might say, almost goes away. And now there's newer recommendations that say, don't do a pap smear, just do an HPV test. Yeah, the HPV um, test. And so I, I sort of use that in my mind as a way to say, it, it sort of makes the HPV vaccine maybe seem more more relevant. But I, I appreciate that insight. What kind of things do you hear from parents about well, vaccines? Well, I mean, you know, with, with all vaccines in general, but, you know, HPV, for, for the reasons we're discussing, is looked at slightly differently because there's a behavior involved. Um, there's always the question about side effects, mm -hmm. right, and bad things. And I'm sure a cursory Google search of HPV and bad outcome would yield mountains of YouTube <laughs> videos. Um, do you have any comments about that or in your experience, have you seen or heard anything regarding that? I've heard lots of concerns, um, <laughs> for sure. I think, you know, interestingly, as, as time marches on, you know, I've been in practice almost 15 years now. Um, I actually hear those kind of concerns less and less. And I think as this vaccine becomes something that now the parents of my patients were offered, mm -hmm. um, because it's been around since, you know, the it was initially approved in 2006 and the current version in 2009, um, people are more and more confident. I think as we saw with COVID, anytime there's a new vaccine, it, people are pr probably appropriately um, a little nervous and they want to see the data. The The question I get most frequently about potential bad outcomes from HPV um, is the question of, of causing premature ovarian failure in young mm, women. Right. Um, somehow that caught fire somewhere, you know, five or 10 years ago that, yeah. that this was inducing some kind of premature um, collapse of, of fertility for young women. Mm -hmm. um, and I just reassure them 
for that, you know, the data just, just does not play that out. Um, and it's, it's all the same um, conversations and, and explanations that we had on the last podcast when we were talking about vaccines for the younger age group that, you know, you have to look at how the data was collected. You have to go over the concept that, um, uh, that uh, causation and um, Correlation. coincidence are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you, I think um, you, re just... you remind us, I think, one of the two, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to get in a nice capsulated statement, but all of us can remember the controversy <laughs> over the COVID vaccine. And what I find myself wanting to point out is HPV and Tdap and those historical vaccines didn't come onto the scene in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Right. When the process right. was incredibly rushed, emotionally and yeah. politically charged. One yeah. of, I think one of the, the side effects, pun intended, of of the pandemic has been, now we have sort of a jaded look at all things vaccine. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. a jaded look at the COVID vaccine is probably justifiable, but don't lump it in with all of the others. Yeah, uh, it's easy to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> right? Uh, that's right. Even though we're talking about adolescence. Yeah. But, um, and, and with that horrible <laughs> analogy, we should, <laughs> we should probably step away for a break. We'll be right back with all things adolescent medicine uh, right after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back on Dr. Doctor, talking to Dr. Gwyneth Spader. Uh, thank you for coming on. We're talking about adolescent visits. And uh, we got to cover the HPV vaccine, which is a big one. Um, but uh, kind of a, even a more general topic that I've always had kind of questions about myself. In, in medical school training, when they're talking about adolescence, there's always this discussion about having the parents leave the room to, to try and talk to the patient, the, the child, on their own. And uh, a lot of times it's different ages when this practice starts, but I think the general thought is they might reveal something to you that they are keeping from their parents. And, and if your parents, if you're not expecting this, it could be a bit unnerving, maybe even off-putting. Oh, yeah. Uh, unless the practice has a way of warning you this is coming maybe at the next visit or something. Well, I, I guess, Gwyneth, how do you deal with that? How does it work in your practice? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly, that's how we were all trained and encouraged to practice. And I think you're exactly right. The thought is, uh, and it's probably an accurate thought for, for many of the adolescent patients, that they will be willing to discuss things with you that they might not be willing to discuss with their parents in the room. So uh, this is how I approach it. First of all, I, I think this very much depends on the age uh, and maturity level of your child. So this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons we encourage people to develop a relationship with their pediatrician over time. Um, this should be someone you know well so that you have some trust in them. And it allows us as the pediatrician to know you, your child, your family, um, uh, and be better able to assess when and if uh, you know, a private conversation with the patient might be appropriate. Um, but I also say that parents should never feel that they have to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and if they are not comfortable with leaving um, and their child is under the age of 18, um, then they don't have to leave. And I've never forced a parent to, to, leave, um, to leave an exam room. But I do encourage it at a certain point. And for me, I find that typically uh, starts, you know, uh, 15, 16-ish, like sophomore, junior in high school, um, to allow the patient to have that time just with me um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, sometimes they are more forthcoming about some risky behaviors uh, when they're just talking with me. But two, as we mentioned earlier in the show, I want them to start experiencing um, you know, taking ownership of their own health um, and their own health care. And if mom or dad is in the room, the default is always to let mom or dad answer the questions. Yeah. Um, and kids need to have that practice in a safe, um, in a safe setting, kind of advocating for themselves, listening to the questions, giving appropriate responses. It's, it's part of learning how to adult. I guess one one of the questions I think parents would have maybe I've had conversations regarding. Um, what if they reveal something that you wish the parents would know or you feel like yeah, we need to encourage this kid? Um, I'm not going to see you for another year. Uh, this sounds yeah. like a, a four alarm fire and mom doesn't know. Yeah. What's what's my role as the doctor and how can I facilitate that? 
So I do, it's a great question. I do always tell my adolescent patients if I'm speaking on them, to them one-on-one that I will maintain confidentiality unless I believe that what they have told me places their health or life at significant risk or the health or life of another individual at significant risk. And then I will bring the parent back into the conversation. So the, the patient knows that upfront and they can factor that into whatever they're willing to share with me. Um, but even if it's not that dire, I do really in those conversations, both with the parent in the room and with the parent out of the room, encourage honesty and open communication between parent and child. Um, it's, it's sometimes very hard, and I think we can all remember back to our own adolescent years um, to to understand the enormity of a parent's love, right? And it, so it's hard to um, convey to a scared teenager that um, their parents really, really do want the best for them and want to work with them through this. But sometimes hearing it from um, an outsider like myself, um, they're more willing to believe it than hearing it from mom or dad. And I wonder, too, to what degree this has become sort of a triggering topic uh, with parents. Yeah. Uh, with so much talk about parental rights, whether it's before school boards or, yeah. you know, with, with issues of gender dysphoria and, yeah. and the schools or other sort of municipalities or authorities interacting with children outside of the parental relationship, parents may feel put upon and attacked and thinking, well, this is just one more, one more affront, you might say, to kind of parental. No, I completely yeah. understand that. I completely understand that both as a pediatrician and especially as a parent, <laughs> right. um, because it does seem um, that that parent parental rights are under attack, yeah. um, and and people have very good reasons to be concerned about that. Um, so another aspect of this. Um, that may be helpful for parents to hear, at least in terms of how I approach it, is I actually try to do my counseling about kind of hot button topics, sexual activity, illicit substances, um, uh, smoking, vaping, texting, driving, all of the scary stuff for parents about raising teenagers. I do that with the parent and the child in the room. Mm. Um, so the parent knows my stand on these things mm. prior to being asked to leave their child with me. Uh. Um, and hopefully that provides some reassurance to them that I'm not, uh, um, you know, not trying to sneak some message in under their nose. Um, and as I said, I, I don't require parents to leave. So if they're mm -hmm. not comfortable with it, then by all means, they should it's, stay. It sounds like the it, there's a big importance of knowing your, your pediatrician yeah, <laughs> and one trusting more, them. One more piece of evidence for <laughs> longitudinal relationships with yeah. healthcare providers. Yeah. You know, yeah. the scenario Absolutely. that I see commonly is, um, you know, an adolescent young woman and a very concerned mother rightfully so, and the mother is doing all the talking. And, yeah. and the daughter is quite happy to have the mother do all, as you mentioned. And so I like to say to the mother, it would really help me if I could hear from you know the daughter's name. Um, I'm, I know that you can tell me, but I'd really love to hear from the daughter. And then sometimes I'll say, would it make that easier maybe if, if we sort of broke up our meeting here for part of it and then just sort of watch the reaction? Mm -hmm. um, but but I really love the way that you said that. You sort of put your credentials out there, so to speak, in front of I show things. my cards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do. I mean, I, this look, this is their child. And, nice. um, you know, hopefully I, I'm always acting in the best interest of their child. I believe I am. But yeah. they have to they have to have, you know, the trust and the, the belief in that to feel comfortable to leave me alone with them. Hmm. Well, and, and you had mentioned counseling on hot button topics. I feel like there's so many in adolescence, but um, especially, you know, progressing over the last five, 10 years, especially, it's the sexual ethics yeah. in adolescence. Yeah. How in the world do you begin to broach that <laughs> with, you know, some little 12 year old you've been seeing since they were born? Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things that I know we're all aware is, is changing, you know, almost more rapidly than you can believe. Uh, this was not something that was covered at all in my pediatric training <laughs> nice. 15, yeah. 
18 years ago. It just, it just didn't exist. I vaguely remember hearing about it in my psychiatry courses, but um, it certainly wasn't a part of pediatric practice, but it, it is today. Um, you know, I, I live where I live um, and where I practice, it has not been something I encounter on a regular or frequent basis. Right. Um, but it certainly is something that's always on everyone's minds um, for one reason or another. So, you know, what I do um, kind of starting in the tween, early tween years, which I would define as, you know, 11-ish, um, is, and maybe for, for some girls, depending on, you know, what I see in their physical exam even earlier, I will just kind of generally ask, are there any questions that you have for me about how your body might be changing mm. over the next couple of years? Um, are there any questions you have for me about how some of your friends' bodies are changing already? Um, because, you know, there's just such an enormous range of normal when it comes to when puberty starts for both boys and girls. And so, you know, right. in those middle school ages, you can have kids who, you know, are completely completely prepubertal um, in class with kids who are basically adults in terms of their sexual characteristics. And, and that can be really confusing for kids. So I like to give them the opportunity to ask questions, um, you know, in a, in a safe, in a safe environment. I do start screening for sexual activity um, once kids uh, hit high school because unfortunately we know that that's a reality in the world we live in. Um, I just ask them the question, um, you know, are, have you engaged in any sexual form of sexual activity? And if they say yes, then we have a conversation about um, whether or not they're using any form of um, protection because I need to know whether they require, you know, sexual transmitted infection screening, right. um, which I would offer to anyone who's, who is sexually active. Um, and I make sure that um, both sexes, but particularly my adolescent girls understand that you can have asymptomatic sexual infections that you may not know about if we don't test for it, but can cause long-term harm to your fertility. Mm. Um, so that it is important um, from a purely health perspective um, to screen for these infections if you're choosing that, those kind of behaviors and activities. Well, as a fertility worker, I, I thank you for that. I hope all of your co <laughs> colleagues are doing the same thing. It would be horrible for us to be accused of letting you off easy. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, But, you know, I had a question recently uh, from a mother who said, um, I'm pretty sure my daughter, who is young, is sexually active. And she says to me, what do you think about that? And so, you know, my tough question to you, Gwyneth, is how do you address um, your views as a mother, as a parent, as a Catholic, with maybe the American Academy of Pediatrics views uh, on these topics? How do you make that work in a way that you stay sane? <laughs> Am I sane? I hope I'm still sane. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult line to walk, isn't yeah, it? Um, it is. In a from a professional, um, a spiritual, uh, personal um, standpoints. So I guess what I would say to that parent, um, what, what do I think about that? Um, I honestly believe it is not in the best interest of the child's health to be sexually active at that age. Mm -hmm. And that is for both biological and emotional reasons, mm -hmm. um, that there are inherent risks, um, physically speaking, to sexual activity, um, and that there are emotional um, realities to that kind of behavior and relationship that can be very damaging to young people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do my best to encourage my patients, whatever their faith and moral background, to, to, to you know, not become sexually active at such a young age. Yeah. I don't know if that's answering your question. It is. I mean, I, I think we all struggle with that. Uh, I mean, I like to say, there's the theological road and the biological road. They end in the same place. Yeah. Which road would you would you like to hear about? And then I, yeah. I had a disgruntled parent once say to me, well, you think that because you're a Catholic. And I thought, no, I mean, I think that because I'm almost 60 and I've, <laughs> I've lived a lot. And, and to your point, this is bad for you. 
has, you, yeah, you know, just, outside of moral theology. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've found a place that, that always stresses me out a little bit is when um, maybe a patient and her mother especially may have drastically different worldviews, mm-hmm. uh, still seeking out care with me, but you, you may have found yourself in a position before where they're in for a well child, Jack, the, the young lady is maybe 15, mm-hmm. and it's very clear, however they come out and say it, is, okay, we got to get her on the pill now. Yeah. How do you deal with those conversations when the expectation is so heavy? Um, in my practice, a lot of times we're very upfront with, you know, I'm blessed to be in a Catholic place, so we just don't do that. I kind of take the easy way out. I think it's a lot harder um, to really engage on the, the folks who don't necessarily see that conversation coming. How, how should we think about that? Yeah, again, it's, um, it requires, um, you know, careful thought and some finesse. So, you know, I, I not infrequently have either the patient or the parent or both asking me um, for some form of birth control. Yeah. Um, and my um, explanation or kind of response to that is that it's just not part of my practice. Mm. Um, and if they ask me why, then I will explain that I don't think it's in their you know, best interest to be sexually active at this age. Um, I do use occasionally some hormonal birth control for um, non-sexually active adolescents with various gynecological problems in the short term. Um, But if I am, if I have any reason to believe that they are asking for birth control as birth control, then I just explain to them that that I don't provide that service. Mm. But it's not an easy. It's not an easy discussion. It's not an easy path. Um, I, I it's tougher for you uh, because the expectation, I think, is so so high with specialty organizations and the like. Oh yeah. You know, sort of promoting. I get things from ACOG that say I'm supposed <laughs> to be talking to 11 and 12 year olds about IUDs. Um, Good and, grief! And there's just a lot of pressure. yeah. It, it just it keeps coming, and you know, we have various competencies and quality metrics we're yes. supposed to hit and all this kind of stuff. So there is there is a lot of outside pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a very firm belief in, in kind of more secular professional organizations um, that not only is it a possibility that adolescent patients will be sexually active, but in some sense that they should be, which again <laughs> is something that I feel like right. has changed over yes. you know the 10 to 15 years that I've been in practice. Um, and I find that very discouraging and, and just very unfair to our young people that, that that kind of pressure and expectation is being put on them by people that they should be able to look to as you know trusted authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody agrees they so, can't consent to alcohol or tobacco use, but correct. we expect them to consent to these sexual de- decisions, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the whole transgender thing in general, I mean, and I guess maybe as I'm thinking of our listeners as a parent who, who don't have the option to come and see you, uh, what, what are they, what are their children probably getting from their pediatrician in regard to questions about sexual activity? And I mean, I, I'm thinking of my, my oldest is going to turn 12 here in a month. And if a pediatrician asked him some of these, you know, kind of, they're all leading questions right. regarding transgender yeah. stuff. He, I don't know what he would do. He'd be shocked, uh, just flabbergasted yeah, yeah. in in many ways so unnatural. And we're homeschooled, so it's it still looks unnatural to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What yeah, what, what can parents expect? You know. So I think parents, you know, if if you don't know anything about kind of your your pediatrician's background or, or kind of moral. Uh, foundation or background, um, it would be considered fairly standard of care these days to start asking children probably around 12 or 13, maybe earlier, you know, do, are, are they one interested in sexual activity? Have they participated in any forms of sexual activity? Um, do they feel attracted to people of the opposite sex, to the same sex, both? Um, are they comfortable in, um, you know, being identified as a boy or being identified as a girl? Mm. Um, I, how I try to explain it to parents who um, 
you know, hear things that their children are saying and discussing among their friends um, is that just this is just an incredibly difficult landscape for these kids to be navigating right now. Um, and I think for many of my patients, um, even those from families where, you know, this just this entire topic was unheard of a few years ago, um, there's an incredible pressure in, in school. Um, we haven't even talked about social media um, on all these tech devices to identify as something. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have to remember that adolescence is supposed to be a time of finding your own identity, becoming your own person. Um, but it's at the same time, you know, also when they're starting to move a little bit away from the family union, unit and are looking for a community and to be accepted by their peers. And, and that's a very dangerous um, combination to be throwing kids out into the, the secular culture that we have today. So what I'm finding is that I have these patients who will say things like, well, I think I'm non-binary. Uh, okay, you know, let, let's talk about that. What, do you, what does that mean to you? Um, and as far as I can make out, in many cases, if not most cases, it's kind of a safe label for them to take because it's very non-committal. Mm -hmm. It basically means, especially for these sweet little middle schoolers who really want nothing to do with this, that they can just hang out with their friends, right? Like they like hanging out with their girlfriends or they like hanging out with their, you know, like you're not required, it doesn't require you to do anything, but it allows yeah. you to claim a label that's considered acceptable within this, this community mm -hmm. that has become so popular. Um, and so I, I suspect that a large number of non-binary adolescents are just using that label as, as safe cover. The other thing I, I like to point out to kids when this comes up, particularly the younger kind of middle school age group, you know, we in our modern culture keep pushing sex and sexual questions and sexual identity down on younger and younger age groups. And it's just obviously not developmentally appropriate. It should not be on their radar, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they are not, um, they shouldn't be thinking these things or asking themselves these questions. And so I think what sometimes happens is you have, you know, a sweet little 10 or 11 year old girl who is like, well, I don't like the boys in my class. They're gross. And therefore, because I don't like boys, I must be right. gay. Yeah. And what I what I try to introduce into the conversation is no, no, you think boys are gross because 10 and 11 year old boys are gross. They are gross. You know, you have to give them some time like yeah, you don't actually have to make this decision right now. Um, so, again, it's just what we've done to this age group and as a culture is, is really sad, right? Like, this is just not something you're supposed to have to think about at 10, 11, and 12 years of age. You remind me of a psychiatry mentor that I had who was giving a lecture, and he was describing that a parent said, you know, I think my 8-year-old is a homosexual. And he said, no, your 8-year-old is asexual. Um, yeah, exactly. Right? And, and they'll remain that way naturally unless something forces them. And it reminds me when you say that, we're, when you say they shouldn't be thinking these things, I think it's fair to say, you say that not as a, in a normative kind of moral way, it's because if left to their own devices, they wouldn't Correct. be thinking about those They things. wouldn't be thinking, right. yeah, when I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not passing a moral judgment, like right. it's bad that they're thinking about these things. I think it's just not developmentally natural yeah. Yeah. for those questions to arise in those age groups. Yeah, I think about my own 14-year-old son who is interested in two things and two things only, uh, food and how many push-ups he can do. Um, <laughs> there you go. And, and left alone, I think he'll stay that way for a while. Uh, but there's so many while. external yeah. forces that are trying to force these things on, on our kids. It is frustrating. Gwyneth, I guess one kind of a tangential thing, uh, a little bit related, is what what do you do when you have a patient, a teenager, and their parent who disagree about something? Um, could be sexual morality, could be vaccines, you name it. How do you navigate that as a doctor? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, in some ways, it depends on the laws of your state. So different states have different laws and ages of consent for a variety of things for variety of ages, whether it's vaccines, what age you can consent to vaccines, what age you can seek 
health care under, you know, for sexual um, problems or concerns without without parental consent. So, um, but if they're both in my office disagreeing about something together, then I just feel like my role is to try and be the be the neutral kind of party um, providing outside guidance. Um, you know, even something as simple as uh, social media use mm. or when they get their first smartphone. Um, we, a lot of kids disagree with their parents about those <laughs> kind of decisions. Um, and I think sometimes just having someone who's not emotionally kind of tied into the relationship um, to provide, you know, some thoughts can be helpful. Um, and, uh, I, you know, for the most part, I think sometimes I disappoint my patients because I, I tend to agree with their parents on the restrictions of social media, <laughs> smartphones. But um, yeah, I think the best thing to, that can be done in that scenario is just to, to continue the dialogue and to provide whatever objective data might be missing from the conversation about whatever it is they're disagreeing on. You know, as, as you think about these, these adolescent years, um, whether it's with boys and with girls, recognizing it could be different issues. But what comes to mind in your practice as sort of that th most important thing that you're looking for, that if you, if you didn't find but one thing, that's the thing that you would find? Um, you know, I think what I kind of intuitively screen for as I'm sitting with an adolescent and their parent in the office is... Um, kind of uh, their sense of self ownership um, and their sense of kind of peace within themselves. And, and that's a mm -hmm. wordy way of, of getting at the question of mental health, which we haven't spent a lot of time yeah. talking about. But it's, it's very clear from a way an adolescent conducts themselves within a, a, a well child check, how they're doing in terms of social interactions with their parents, with adults, with their peers, mm. um, how they're performing in school, and how that's likely to play out in the next few years as they move towards more independent living. Um, so I try to kind of always be on the lookout for warning signs or concerning signs. Um, to me, that's you know inability to answer questions themselves, inability to put their phones down during the appointment, um, you know, kind of uh, short, rude answers to parents. All adolescents get a little snarky with their parents, but when they do it in front of another adult, that's that's a little bit of a warning sign to me. Um, so those kind of things, because um, those are things that parents might not necessarily think we have anything to offer them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the pediatrician can be useful in those scenarios to say, hey, uh, you know, I've noticed this, I have these concerns, um, and I'm here to say it's okay to kind of challenge your child to, one, explain why they're feeling this way, how can we work through this as a family, but, but set the bar high. Um, I think if I can do anything for my adolescent patients and, and their parents is don't give in to this secular culture's lowering of the bar for behavior and expectations for this age group. Um, they can do great things. They they can be responsible individuals. They can make good choices. We're just constantly telling them they can't. Um, and then we're surprised when they don't. Um, so, you know, I, I try to encourage parents to parent still through these years. You know, they are not little adults. They're not adults at all. They still need their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's okay to, to really challenge them to, to be great people. Well, Gwyneth, that seems like the perfect place to leave this latest installment of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine with you. Thank you again for joining us and for sharing your expertise here on Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. Thank you so much. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And Andrew, I think this has been a great discussion. I think all parents are really probably happy they tuned into this one. Well, it's it's a stressful situation having teenagers to begin with going to the doctors 
provoke stress <laughs> on its own. And when you put them together, it, it's dangerous. But I was so happy to have Gwenethon yeah. to walk us through it. I felt like I learned a lot, too. My first of my top three takeaway, I think, uh, this idea that who you choose is your uh, Pete's provider, be it a family physician or a pediatrician, it matters. Yeah. And so know about them. Know their positions on life and on parenting and on important moral and ethical questions. You need to know that. Yeah. I think my one of my takeaways would be uh, good advice to me as a doctor. Get your credentials, your advice out there with the parent such that uh, if they choose to leave the room or if that's part of your exam, it shouldn't be a stressful process because you're not going to spring anything on them. You already got the really, you know, really heavy stuff out with the parent in the room. And if you as a parent have those doubts in that setting, maybe number one wasn't right. Maybe you didn't choose properly. That's right. Yeah. I really love that she finished with probably the most important thing in an adolescent medicine, you might say, is um, their mental health, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, how are they doing emotionally? Is there depression? Is there anxiety? Is there sort of maladjustment? Uh, with society and friends. That's so important in those years. There's really, there's an unlimited number of things we could talk about. I expect that we're going to be covering this uh, in the future as well, and uh, especially in our, our daily life. So I'm happy to have had this conversation with her. Yeah, me as well. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can check out all of our old episodes at our website, drdoctor.org. You can just click on episode archive. You can look up over 300 episodes if you'd like. We have a video version of our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org and click submit a question if you have a great idea for an episode. This is Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.